Trazodone and nifazidone are relatively old medications that started the subgroup of antidepressants called serotonin modulators. This group has long been few in number and had limited purposes until adding velazidone and vortioxetine in the lineup in the 2010s. So, Dr. Papalia, what can you tell us about the history of the two original drugs in this category? Trazodone was the prototype in this category. It preceded SSRIs and became the first non-tricyclic and non-MAOI antidepressant approved in the United States in 1981. Developed in the 1960s at Angelini Research Laboratories in Italy, it was formulated to treat depression without the anticholinergic side effects of the tricyclic antidepressants popular at the time. However, its use as an antidepressant quickly faded due to the excessive sedation it caused. To solve this problem, the U.S. pharmaceutical company Bristol-Myers Squibb slightly modified the trazodone compound to create nefazodone and obtained FDA approval in 1994. Unfortunately, they, while they did correct the excess sedation, post-marketing reports of fatal acute liver injury put a black box label on it in 2002. Some countries even withdrew marketing authorization, and in 2004, Bristol-Myers Squibb stopped sales of nefazodone in the U.S. due to declining demand. While nefazodone is currently still available as a generic by Teva Pharmaceuticals, it is very rarely used due to its marred reputation. Despite the tainted history of these two drugs, Trazodone's infamous hypnotic effect has catapulted it to the top 30 list of the most prescribed medications in the United States for the past 10 years, making it also the most prescribed sleep aid by far. Interestingly, this is despite any FDA approval for insomnia or any remarketing campaign as a sleep aid. That's pretty unusual for a medicine for depression to now be so popular for that. So uh, tell us a little bit how the two medications work. So trazodone blocks presynaptic 5-HT2 receptors, stimulates 5-HT1A receptors, and weakly inhibits serotonin uptake, all of which serve the antidepressant and anxiolytic effects. It also blocks histamine 1 and alpha 1 adrenergic receptors, and along with that 5-HT2A blockade, this exerts the sedating effect. At lower doses, it appears to cause, in general, serotonin antagonism, and at higher doses, serotonin agonism. This corresponds somewhat with the clinical uses of lower doses for insomnia and higher doses for depression. Nevertheless, its entire spectrum of activity is not fully accounted for by this current understanding. Nefazidone is overall similar to trazodone, except it was designed to have less alpha-adrenergic blockade, thus reducing its sedating effect. So with all these different kind of mechanisms of actions, uh, what have these drugs been shown to be effective in treating? 
As far as the FDA is concerned, both are only approved to treat major depression. Off-label indications for trazodone include, of course, insomnia, both for sleep onset and sleep maintenance, but also for anxiety, PTSD, bulimia nervosa, agitated behavior in dementia, substance abuse, fibromyalgia, and functional dyspepsia. However, it would not be found as a first-line option for any of those indications, even insomnia. As an adjunctive therapy, though, it is much more attractive. As for nefazodone, due to its limited use and experience, it has no off-label indications. Uh, so, despite the fact that trazodone uh, is being one of the most commonly prescribed sleep aids, how strong is the evidence, if there is any, to justify its use for that? So surprisingly, for primary insomnia, the evidence is pretty weak. Even the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends against its use based on the paucity of data and small effect sizes. There have been multiple randomized trials of trazodone for primary insomnia, but most of them are in small populations. The studies show conflicting results and the generally accepted interpretation is that trazodone has fair short-term efficacy for about one to two weeks. If used at all for primary insomnia, it should be third line after CBT for insomnia, which is a first-line treatment for insomnia, and then second-line medications such as doxepin, zolpidem, subrexant, and remelteon. For insomnia associated with depression, however, the data is better. And this is indeed one of its most common and accepted uses as a sleep aid. More recently, a similar efficacy has been noted for insomnia related to substance abuse. And so how are these uh, two drugs typically administered? So trazodone is dosed anywhere from 12 and a half, which is has to be done as a quarter of a 50 milligram tablet, all the way to 600 milligrams per day. Administration after a meal increases absorption and delays the peak concentration, which can be helpful in some situations. The dosage for depression is higher, usually 200 to 400 milligrams, while for insomnia and both, most other indications, it is between 50 and 200 milligrams. When used at low doses, it is typically given as a single dose at night, although if the calming effects are desired during the day, such as for agitation and dementia, doses can be split up. If using split dosing, patients may better tolerate a smaller dose during the day and a higher dose at bedtime. The extended release version of trazodone, although no longer available in the U.S. or Canada, is dosed from 150 milligrams to 375 milligrams, given once at bedtime. Nefazodone's dosage for depression is similar to trazodone with a usual range of 150 to 600 milligrams per day, divided into two doses. In contrast, though, administration after a meal slightly actually reduces the absorption. Both of these drugs are metabolized by the liver into active metabolites and excrete in the urine. There are no formal recommendations for dosage adjustments, so general caution is appropriate. Nefazodone's acute liver toxicity is not known to be dose-related, but 
Regardless, it should be avoided in pre-existing liver injury or pre-existing liver disease as a precaution. Neither affect the metabolism of other drugs, but both are heavy substrates of CYP3A4. In the elderly, the usual dosage for trazodone is decreased down to 75 to 150 for depression, and of course, they should be monitored closely for excess sedation. Also, both have relatively short half-lives, except for the extended-release trazodone, so if they're being discontinued, they should be tapered off slowly. And lastly, in overdose, both are really generally non-lethal, but trazodone is a little more likely to cause coma due to its sedating effects, and it has more proarrhythmic properties, and it can cause priapism. So we talked about another sedating antidepressant called mirtazapine, which we discussed supposedly is more sedating at a lower dose. Um, so does trazodone work in that same way? There's really no strong evidence to suggest that it does. However, trazodone's mechanism of action for sedation is similar to mirtazapine's, which might at least explain the lack of increasing sedative effect at higher doses. So other than sedation and hepatotoxicity that we talked about, what other adverse effects do these medications have that would be uh, worth knowing about? Other than sedation, trazodone's most common side effects are GI distress, dizziness, and drowsiness, often described by patients as a hungover sensation in the morning, blurred vision, headaches, and orthostatic hypotension, although this in particular may wane with time. The popular rare adverse effect is priapism. So we should be cautious in, in patients with pre-existing risk factors for priapism, like sickle cell disease, certain penile conditions, and hypercoagulable states. It can also rarely cause QT prolongation, various arrhythmias, and mild pupillary dilation, which could put someone at risk of acute angle closure glaucoma if they're already predisposed. As mentioned already, it can cause a discontinuation syndrome if discontinued abruptly. Nefazodone is overall similar with a few exceptions. It can still cause sedation, but much less than trazodone. Nefazodone is also not associated with priapism. The main rare adverse effect for nefazodone is the fatal acute liver injury. Notably, while this side effect destroyed the drug's reputation, the reported rates of fatal liver injury is 1 in 250 to 300,000 patient years. Just in, to give a comparison, valproic acid has a fatal acute liver injury incidence between 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 40,000, which is much higher than nefazodone despite how popular it is. And like all other antidepressants, both carry an FDA black box warning for increased short-term suicidality in pediatric and young adult patients. So if the landscape for trazodone has changed drastically from its original intent as an antidepressant to now an off-label sleep aid, and the fazodone has been largely driven off the market, uh, when would we want to try and pick these medications and when should they really be used? As a sleep aid for primary insomnia, trazodone may really be overutilized, at least in the United States. 
However, since it has a relatively benign adverse effect profile compared to other hypnotics, some of this is understandable. The best kind of patient for trazodone, though, is one with depression or anxiety who suffers from insomnia, in which case it should be used as an adjunct. Its use as monotherapy for depression should only be a last resort. There is a wide range of better options available for depression and anxiety nowadays. The same applies to nefazodone. While the risk of hepatotoxicity is actually quite rare, nefazodone has no particular advantage compared to newer antidepressants that would outweigh this risk. Additionally, nefazodone is relatively expensive for generic medication, presumably due to its limited production. And if a multimodal antidepressant is really desired, there are other options. And one of the newer serotonin modulators, vilazodone, is expected to have generic versions available starting this year in 2022. So trazodone is an example of how the originally intended use and FDA-approved indication may not reflect the eventual practice use of a medicine. You see that with a lot of the older antidepressants and TCAs. While this means we should be flexible with the uses of our tools, we should also remain vigilant about their histories and whether data truly support their new use. Uh, thank you very much for this discussion on trazodone and nefazodone, Dr. Papalia, uh, and uh, thanks for coming in and talking to us about this. You're welcome. Thank you. Mm -hmm.